Hi, my name is Matthew Wilson, and I am a student at Cairn University in the MDiv. I should be graduating in the spring, hopefully. Uh, and if you would like to follow along today, the text that we're going to be working from is Psalm 130. I don't have sufficient time to deal with every detail, but I do want to highlight the main takeaways for us. And the title of the sermon is Finding Our Way Out of the Depths. Finding Our Way Out of the Depths. Before I begin, I want to share a scene from Pilgrim's Progress to introduce us to a concept that's extremely relevant to our text. Um, if you're not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegorical story of the Christian life, and it's written by John Bunyan uh, when he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and I believe that it was in England in the 17th century. Uh, and if you haven't read this book, I strongly encourage you to. It's really, it's a must read. In any case, at one point in the story, Christian and his friend Hopeful, they get captured by a giant named Despair, and he brings them to his home, which is Doubting Castle, and at his at his castle, he throws them in a dungeon, and he leaves them there. Uh, in this place, he, he beats them, and he tries to strip them of all hope of getting out from that dungeon. He even encourages them to commit suicide uh, because there's no hope for him, and Christian, he nearly does. But Hopeful talks him out of it multiple times. And in the dungeon, uh, they're starving, they're dying, their hope is fading quickly. And the giant repeatedly comes back to beat them down as they're weak. And after a few days of doubting uh, and almost giving up, Christian says this, quote, What a fool I've been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called Promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. End quote. So then, with this key of promise, they escape from the the giant and return to the way to the celestial city. So the point that I want to make from this is that Christian and Hopeful, they're despairing of their condition of being in the dungeon and prisoners of giant despair. And the dungeon, as I said, this is an allegorical story. It represents a place of agonizing spiritual darkness. Christian forgets that he has this key to escape the condition that he's in the entire time. And what's that key? It's the key of promise. And this is representative of the word of God, or at the very least, the promises that are held within the word of God. Which, and these are the, this is what grounds his hope. This sets, uh, this sets Christian and hopeful free from their despairing condition. So in our text today, we're going to see that the psalmist presents us with the key out of the spiritual depths. So just as Christian used the key of promise to escape the doubt, to escape doubting castle and giant despair, the psalm is our key to escaping the spiritual depths. So let's pray before we get into the text. Lord, uh, I ask that this this psalm would be a great encouragement to your people today. I know it has been for me. Um, I know that many here probably know uh, know this psalm pretty well and have drawn great encouragement from it. But God, I ask that you would help us to slow our minds down and focus on what you have for us today. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's read this text and get into it. I'll be reading from the NIV, since that's the version that we generally use, and I think the translation here is, is good. Um, so verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand... But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So this psalm, it's considered to be one of the seven penitential psalms, and the author, he's not mentioned. You might consider this sermon to be one that takes you back to the basics of Christianity. As I said, I think that many of us know um, the concept that we're, or the concepts that we're about to learn today or be reminded of today, but I ask that we would slow down and focus on, on the psalm. The psalms are different than narrative or, or epistle. Sometimes I think they take more time to digest or or chew on um so this psalm it really it sets before us a path of finding our way out of the depths of our sin so we're going to work through the psalm in four parts basically i'll do verse two verses at a time so let's let's start with verses one and two and and this section presents us with the condition of the psalmist and his cry for help 
but primarily the condition of the psalmist. So he says, out of the depths, out of the depths I cry to you. So the key to seeing this, like the state or condition that the psalmist is in, is that phrase, out of the depths. We see the preposition out of, and it can be translated as from, but in any case, it tells us the place from which the psalmist is crying out. So he's in the depths, and he's crying out to the Lord from the depths. So it tells us where he is at. Now the question is, what are the depths? And what do these depths tell us about the condition of the psalmist? So the word for depths is generally translated or, or used in context of like deep valleys or um, deep places, especially like waters. It's, it's talking about the uh, basically difference between the surface and being below. So it's underneath the surface. And there's an uneasiness to the word. It's a place of being surrounded by darkness and helplessness. There's a place of separation and isolation, or it is a, se- a place of separation and isolation. Um, we need to know that in, in this context, it's being used in a figurative way, not in a literal way. So the psalmist isn't saying that I'm literally in the depths in, in, a, in like a locative sense or in some sort of location. He's, he's telling us about uh, where he's at um, in a figurative sense. So when it comes to the figurative sense of the word, we basically have two options. The first option can, or is, uh, to use the word in the sense of outward depths of afflictions, like a situation that's brought on um, by outward circumstances, or it can refer to some sort of internal depths, like wrestling with the conscience because of sin. Um, the outward depths of afflictions or situations, that can be illustrated in Psalm 69, 14, where it's written, uh, Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. So the word for deep there is actually the same word as depths that we find in Psalm 130, verse 1. But you can see that the phrase here is tightly connected to deliver me from those who hate me. So the Psalter, in this, in this case, he's asking for relief from his condition of being in the depths, but that condition of being in the depths is tightly linked to an outward situation, an outward circumstance, those who hate me. Now, on the other hand, there's the figurative sense of the, the inward depths of a conscience that's, that's pricked on account of sin or harassed, I think might be a better word. Uh, it pictures a conscience that is weighed down by sin, surrounded by the guilt of it, um, a conscience that feels a separation and isolation from God because of the guilt of its sin. Now, in Psalm 130, this is the use that we're seeing. Um, and the reason why I say this is because of the following context. So first, the psalmist, he asks for mercy. Second, he acknowledges that if the Lord were to mark iniquities or keep track of sin, um, then no man can stand before him. And third, he acknowledges that there is forgiveness with the Lord. And if, if this was simply an outward circumstance, and we, he would not ask for forgiveness or be talking about sin. Um, so what I would say is that this evidence, it strongly suggests that sin is very close to his mind. Uh, he feels the weight of it. He's engulfed by it. He's in the depths of it. You'd say the waves of his sin are heavy on his conscience. It's a dark place. He knows his sin. Um, we'll see this more in detail as we move forward. So this is the condition of the psalmist. Um, but before we move on, I kind of want to lean in a little bit heavier on uh, the common experiences of believers who are in the depths. And this will probably relate with you in, in some ways. Uh, believers who fall into the depths, they lose a sense of God's love for them. They might have some sense of God's love for the world in general, but for them in particular or individually, uh they have lost a sense of that. There's no assurance that they're saved. Um, second, there's an excruciating consciousness of one's sins against God. They, these individuals, they know their failures deeply. Uh, third, we can say there's an over, overwhelming sense of God's wrath and his judgment, probably coming judgment and coming wrath upon them because they don't know that they're saved. Um, fourth, there's a sense that God's far away. He's unreachable. Um, there's a gap, right? Being in the depths, there's a gap between the surface and, and the deep. Um, and this gap can't be crossed. At least it feels that way. There's a sense in which the individual feels that way. And lastly, there's a spiritual depression and a lack of zeal. 
Uh, these individuals, they lose their fire and they feel lost. They appear to be hopeless on the brink of despair. So this is the condition of the psalmist. Um, and this is common for believers to fall into as well. So now I want to focus on, or I want to follow the psalm and focus on the behavior of the psalmist when he's in the depths, what he does in order to find relief from the depths. And this is, as I said before, this psalm is the key that provides uh, a, a path or direction for us to find our way out of the depths as well. But we need to remember that, that this depth is tightly linked to sin. It's not necessarily about an outward circumstance, though I, I would argue that the principle could be applied to that. And I'll try to apply the principle more broadly later on. Okay, so what does the psalmist do when he's in the depth? So if we look at verse, or the second half of verse 1, we can see how it says, I cry to you, Lord, I cry to you. Um, and this is absolutely vital, and it's like, really obvious but it's something that's really sadly overlooked i mean in our day-to-day lives so the individual he's seeking relief from his condition and where does he go who does he cry out to he comes to god and he comes to god alone and that's so simple it's so simple uh and we cannot overlook this so let's let's let me make this more clear by drawing it out a little bit um so first notice that the psalmist he does not sit still and do nothing he does something, and that something is um, he cries out to God. Also notice, uh, the psalmist does not go to something else for relief from his condition. He goes to God alone. Many people, right, they, they go to something else other than God to find relief from a condition that only God can cure. So seeking to escape from their guilt and shame, they turn to anything but God and go deeper and deeper into the depths. And then some simply go within themselves to find a cure. They try to fix themselves by themselves. They sin and then amend their sin by their, uh, try to make up, they try to make up for their sin in some way. Um, thinking that they can repay God or pay the debt that they've incurred by their sin. Uh, this individual will probably try to better himself or make himself, uh, or make up for his sin before he goes to God. And then some, they distract themselves and find false reliefs for their condition. And this is probably the most common as what we see around us and probably what we do. Uh, so many, they'll fix their minds on something cannot cure, but it helps them forget uh, their sickness or forget that they're in the depths. And this is, yeah, this is American culture at its finest. When we're feeling down, when we're convicted of our sin, we have a million things that we go to before going to God. But in contrast to this, the believer refuses to allow his mind to be distracted or his conscience to be eased by anything, even if it might be a good thing. He knows his sickness. He knows nothing in this world can heal him. Nothing can save him from himself. No distraction is large enough to keep his mind off of the impending judgment that he faces because of his sin. So what does he do? This is what the psalmist does. He goes to God and God alone. He knows that if he goes to another distraction when he's laying in bed at night, uh, he can't escape. He cannot escape. He's still in the depths. He might forget that he's in the depths for a moment, but he cannot escape it no matter what he does. He knows nothing can heal him from it but God alone. Um, God alone can take away his guilt. God alone can forgive him. God alone can pull him out of the depths. So knowing this, he takes his first step from the depths to God. And that's vital, uh, as I said. And it's so simple, but I hope you see how overlooked this is in your own life and in our day-to-day lives. Um, I think we might be shocked to see how often we don't go straight to God for relief for our sin. Um, we'd probably be ashamed if people knew how often we don't do that. Uh, but we must remember remember this principle and hold on to it okay so i want to sum up where we're at at this point in the sermon and in the psalm so and i'm actually not going to hit on verse two because of time but i i can say about verse two that this going to god is sincere it's not half-hearted he sincerely goes to god and asks for mercy the psalmist um, but in any case, so far we've discovered that the psalmist is in the depths on account of his sin. 
He's drowning in the guilt of it. He's entangled by it, and his first step is towards God. He cries out to God and God alone, knowing that God is the only one who has the ability to help his condition. So from here forward, we're really going to see the psalmist inquiry after relief. But So he, he goes to God, and now we're going to see more specifically what that looks like. So in verses 3 and 4, we read, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So these verses, they present us with what the psalmist does after having gone to God and cried out for mercy. First, he acknowledges that if the Lord were to keep a record of sin, no one would be able to stand before him guiltless. Second, he acknowledges that if there is forgiveness with the Lord, um, oh, that there is forgiveness with the Lord. And that's the key. That's the key. Um, let's look at these verses in some detail. So first, um, he, the psalmist, he's in the depths because of his sin, and he goes to God and he cries out to God for mercy. Then he asks the question, who could stand if you were to keep a record of sin? A record of sins. And the point of this rhetorical question is to get a negative answer. Um, clearly, nobody can stand before the holy God uh, if they were to if God were to hold a record or keep a record of his sins against him. So what we can see from this verse, by implication, is that the psalmist, he's declaring himself to be guilty by judging himself according to the law of God. So he, basically, what he's doing is he just asks for mercy. He's in the depths. He asks for mercy. And then, in this verse, he's basically saying, I have no grounds to ask you for mercy. I'm undeserving. I have no warrant, no claim to it. He understands that he's sinned. He knows the just punishment, punishment that's due him. So that's the attitude of the psalmist at this point. He's aware of his sin. He knows that he cannot stand before God with his sin. And I want to focus here for just a moment. Um, one thing that this verse paired with verse 1 shows us is that he has a sincere sense of his sin. This isn't simply some sort of acknowledgement in his mind that he's a sinner, like on an intellectual level, but it's an acknowledgement of his sin on a personal level. He knows that he's guilty before God. He knows it deeply within his being. David in Psalm 51.3, he really highlights this concept well when he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And what he's saying here is that his sin, his guilt, is always on the front of his mind. He can't escape it. He can't just run away from it. It's in his DNA. It like flows through his veins. Um, there's a deep and personal sense of it, more than just hearing it and being able to recite it hearing it from someone and then repeating the words. He knows it in his being. Um, he's sinful through and through. Second, uh, he condemns himself. He doesn't defend himself. He agrees with God that he's guilty and deserves the penalty for his error. And this, in this self-condemnation, you could say that there's a, a self-implicit self-abhorrence and disgust um, at one's being because he's heinous in the sight of a holy God. Um, and there's no excusing his behavior, and there's no excusing his sin. He agrees with God and condemns himself. Now, we have to keep in mind here that self-condemnation is not the goal. It's not where someone should rest. Uh, it's a good step in the process, but it's not, um, it's not conversion is really what it comes down to. Many people uh, begin to rest in this state of conviction um, as it it makes them more worthy of God's grace, thinking that they're in a good condition. They have a basis for peace. Um, and they begin to rest within a fr on a frame that's within themselves um, and in, in their subject subjective experience of conviction. But the issue, outside of just being like self-righteous, and what I mean by self-righteous is relying on themselves, something in themselves, and it... The real issue is that conviction isn't conversion. Being strongly convicted of sin, it's good. Um, condemning oneself in light of viewing oneself through the lens of the law, that's, that's good. Being remorseful for that sin is good. Um, being weird and burdened, burdened by sin, that's a good thing. But it's not conversion. It must go farther. So what we can say is that a true sense of one's guilt, it produces a pursuit of God for pardon. A pursuit of God for pardon. A going towards God for forgiveness. And that's a, that's a really big point, And it really leads us to the next verse. So in verse 4, 
um, it provides us with a really strong shift from verse 3. So while verse 3 focuses on the just condemnation of sinners, verse 4 focuses on the free forgiveness of sinners. And the conjunction there that we see, but, really highlights this. It's similar to the way that the, the word but functions in Romans 3.21. So basically in Romans 1-3, to Paul is painting a very gloomy picture of mankind and saying, no no one can be justified according to the words of the law. But then in Romans 3.21, you have this phrase, uh, but now. And basically what he's saying there is, but now there is a righteousness apart from the law. And what he's saying by saying that is, but before there's no hope, but now there's hope. Now there's hope. And I think that's similar in, in the psalmist thinking at this point. In verse 1 he says, out of the depths I cry to you for mercy, verse 2, um, listen to me, verse 3, I have no right to even ask you for mercy. And then verse 4, he encourages himself, he encourages himself, he says, but, but there's forgiveness with you, but there's forgiveness with you. Though I have no right to it, um, nothing within me makes me worthy of it, uh, there's still forgiveness with you. And that gives him great encouragement to go to God for relief from his condition. And his faith uh, fixes on that concept. It fixes on it. Now, that's really, it's a major point because for the sinner who's in the depths tangled up by his sin, um, for that that sinner who has no knowledge of God's forgiveness, uh, he has no right or warrant to go to God for forgiveness. To go to God in general. If there's no forgiveness with him, why would a sinner in the depths go to God? He wouldn't. And this this concept, it's really illustrated well in Genesis 3 um, in the account of the fall. So when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, what do they do? Uh, They hide, right? They hid from God. Uh, They did not go to God for forgiveness. And you might critique them and say, well, why wouldn't they go to them? There's forgiveness with God. Well, for them there wasn't. Because at that time, um, what they had on their mind uh, was obey and live, disobey and die. The day of your eating of the fruit, you will surely die. Right? That's on their mind. There was no, and I'll forgive you. And I'll forgive you if you come to me. There was no forgiveness at least on their mind. That was not set in place at that time. So when they eat of the food, what's going through their mind is, you will die, you will die, you will die. And there's good reason to run from God in that case. There's good reason to hide from Him. There was no promise of forgiveness. So the point here is that when there's no forgiveness or no understanding of forgiveness with God, there's no warrant or ground or reason to go to God. They actually had every reason to hide from them. But this is the great lie that we are often presented with today in our minds, right? Oh, you you can't be forgiven of that that sin or try to make up for your sin and then go to God for forgiveness. You need to do something first to make God uh, basically indebted to you to forgive you. Or he'll forgive you only after you've done something to gain his acceptance or you've gone too far this time. Or, or go to something else for relief, because God, God is not going to forgive you for this. He can't heal this condition. You're too far gone. Whatever it might be, right? Um, God cannot save you from the depths. He cannot take you out of that condition. That's what goes through um, our minds often, if we were honest about it. So, the good news is that this is not the case for us today, right? Uh, we can happily say that there is forgiveness with the Lord. But the question, it must be asked, how is there forgiveness with God? Uh, the psalmist, he would answer this probably a little bit differently than we would today, though. Uh, in, a, in a typological manner, he would he, we would have a very similar answer. So... I'm going to go about this from a New Testament perspective. So remember in verse 3 how the psalmist asked how anyone could stand before God? How can a sinful individual stand before a holy God who cannot tolerate sin? And the answer to this is that no one can, or if someone's sins are forgiven, if they're not held against them, if God does not keep a record of them, if this guilt is removed, the question is, how does that happen? 
Now, what I want to focus on here is the concept of a substitutionary sacrifice. But before we get to the sacrifice, we have to lay some groundwork with sin and Christ in his life. Um, so let's start with sin. So there are multiple ways to understand sin, but the ones that I want to highlight is sin as debt and sin as guilt. So we, we know that a sinner has incurred a debt because of his sin, and he cannot simply make up for it. And the reason is that because once God's law has been broken by an individual, he cannot simply do a good deed to make up for the brokenness that he's already, or the sin that he's done. He can't pay God back. You owe God for what you've done, and you cannot pay him back. You cannot just make up for it because the demand is perfection. Second, uh, we also know that a sinner has incurred guilt because of his sin. He's broken God's law, and he's guilty of that, and the consequence of that guilt is judgment, and this is what he justly deserves. So viewing sin as guilt and debt, what we need uh, is a substitute that pays off the debt that we owe to God and that takes away our guilt and sin. Now at this point, someone might ask, well, why can't God simply just forgive a sinner? Why can't he just let him go? And the issue here is because it would be unjust for a holy God, a holy just God, to forgive a sinner who has incurred a debt and is guilty for sinning against him. So think about the situation. Say someone came into your home and killed your family just for the fun of it. So you take this person to court because you want justice for what's been done, which in this case should be the death penalty. Um, but the judge, feeling extra kind, simply forgives what the person did and lets him go free. And you would be furious if this was the case. But why? You would say, that's not fair. And that's exactly the point. The judge would be functioning in an unjust way to let someone go who's guilty of a crime. God functions, always functions as a just judge. He can't do otherwise. It would be unjust of him to let you go for your sins. That's not right. All sinners deserve God's judgment. And God's holy wrath that hangs over sinners because he cannot tolerate sin. And this is the great dilemma for a sinful creature. How can I, as a sinner, stand before God if he is just and holy? And the answer to this dilemma is Christ, right? God provides a substitute who makes it possible for God to be fair and at the same time forgive sinners. And how is that the case? Well, Christ, he takes away our guilt and pays our debt. Really, it's through the concept of substitution, through the concept of substitution. So first, what Christ does is he lives a life that fulfills all righteousness. And what I mean by that is he lives up to God's law perfectly. He achieves righteousness in the place of sinners or for sinners, you could say. He upholds the law perfectly, and this is what God credits to sinners when they put their faith in him. This is Christ's righteousness. He reckons it to them. It's an alien righteousness. Second, Christ offers himself as a sacrifice to God on behalf of sinners. And in this sacrifice, Christ pays the debt that sinners have incurred to God and removes the guilt from sinners through taking the penalty that's due them upon himself. So the guilt of sinners is transferred to the account of Christ, and he's treated as one of them. So the result of this sacrifice is that God is propitiated. He's propitiated. And what I mean by that is that God's wrath, uh, his holy hatred against sin is appeased, and his justice is satisfied. So God's wrath is appeased because God's wrath is unleashed to the fullest extent on the substitute, who's Christ, Right? So God's justice is satisfied because Christ takes the punishment for guilt and pays the debt. He completely takes care of the consequences for our sin. And then God looks on Christ as that substitute in the place of sinners and says, this sacrifice, um, this life of righteousness is sufficient. I will accept this in the place of guilty sinners. That's the principle, that is the way that God deals with fallen man. Um, in order that he might forgive them. And the payment uh, for the guilt incurred for sin has been paid, right? Christ pays it, and God accepts the sacrifice in the place of sinners. So in this way, God's justice is upheld because someone is taking the punishment and paying the price for sin. God satisfies the demands of God's justice fully. Or Christ satisfies it fully. Um, and these are the rules, this is, this is the way that God has made a way 
for sinners to be forgiven. And the response of the sinner in this case, or in, in all cases really, is to say, it's enough for me as well. The sacrifice is sufficient for me as well. And that's really fundamentally uh, what God asks of sinners. And it's not difficult. You can say, uh, use an argument from greater to lesser. If the substitute satisfies the father, how much more should it satisfy the sinner? Um, it is not the strength of the faith that saves the sinner, but it's per- the perfection of the substitute that saves him. All the saving efficacy is found in Christ's complete work, and the sinner simply is to know this and cling to this truth. Christ forgives fully. Okay, so when a sinner gets an understanding of this truth, uh, there are some serious and common difficulties in believing forgiveness. So it's one thing to know that God forgives, as the psalmist does here. He acknowledges there's forgiveness with God. It's a whole other thing to know that God has forgiven you individually and to receive God's forgiveness. So the, the psalmist, it doesn't seem like he has this sense yet. He isn't drawn out of the depths at this point. So I want to mention a few difficulties. One is just that it's too easy. It's too easy. There must be more. And underlying that statement is the pr- the pride of refusing to accept the free, gracious, merciful, full for- full forgiveness of God. So we might think that God's free forgiveness is fine for others, and maybe we don't because we understand that we're not getting what we deserve when we get forgiveness. But when it comes to us individually, we want to be forgiven in another way. We demand that we do something before gaining forgiveness to make up for what we've done. We want to make ourselves more worthy by building up something in us before we come to Christ or get help from Christ. And clearly that's an impossibility because God demands perfection. We cannot. Second, and this is this is a very common difficulty, is that uh, the conscience doesn't know anything of forgiveness. So the conscience, its primary function is to accuse the guilty and defend the guiltless. But if one's guilty, it knows this and it holds on to this and it doesn't simply just say, uh, simply just accept forgiveness from anything, knowing that one cannot be simply cannot simply be forgiven. Um, this would be to betray its primary function of accusing the guilty. The conscience doesn't know forgiveness. If one's guilty, he deserves punishment, and that's that's what the conscience holds on to. And second, the law knows nothing of forgiveness. So, the law literally sets before individuals. Uh, obey and live disobey and die and it's very it's very black and white there's not gray in it there's no forgiveness found in it it lays before the the world sinners um a standard that's impossible to live up to and it really it's just this um this burden that cannot be escaped so the conscience and the law (laughs) when they go together they're like a really, really powerful uh, duo is really what it comes down to. Um, when the law says to a sinner that he sinned and is under God's wrath, the conscience fully agrees with that. He's like, yep, yep, you are. And really what it comes down to is these things are not easily appeased. The law and the conscience are not easily appeased. There's no forgiveness within them. Clearly, Christ is the answer to this. But to train the conscience and the mind to, to agree with that is is extremely difficult and lastly another difficulty is that it's it's um it's a difficult concept for the mind to accept to to just accept complete forgiveness for everything that an individual's done um it's undeserved it feels like an impossibility something too great for the mind to even comprehend which it really is uh, the question is, like, you can be forgiven, I can be forgiven for anything that I've ever done. Uh, we're wicked people. We don't deserve it. So that concept right there is just extremely difficult for the mind to wrap itself around. But there is forgiveness with God. So these things, they make it difficult for the sinner to believe in the forgiveness of sins. And there are others, I'm sure, but I just want to draw out some some primary ones. So let me just briefly sum up to this point where we're at. We're only through verse 3 and a half at this point. So we're going to move quicker through the second half of this. 
yeah, through the second half of this. We'll move a little bit quicker. Um, so the psalmist, he's in the depths because of his sin, doesn't feel forgiveness and the love of God. He feels separated from God. He's surrounded by the sin, his sin and his guilt. Um, so he cries out to God for mercy, and then he acknowledges, you know what, I have no grounds to ask you for mercy. Um, because I can't stand before you, because I'm a sinful individual, and if you hold my sins against me, I'm, I'm in trouble. But then there's a major shift in verse 4, right? He says, but there's forgiveness with God, but there is hope. And the psalmist does not know Christ's sacrifice, but as I said before, it's, it's uh, basically typified in the, in the sacrificial system. So I'm assuming he knows that there's going to be an ultimate sacrifice that's sufficient for his sins and I'm assuming that's why he thinks that there is forgiveness with God um, but in our day we know that there's forgiveness with God through the substitutionary sacrifice that Christ offers on behalf of sinners he appeases God's wrath and he satisfies his justice completely he literally does it all there's nothing more for the sinner to do the question is is will you accept that um, and at this point the psalmist uh he doesn't have a deep sense of this forgiveness individually, personally, though he knows the concepts. Uh, he knows, he acknowledges it. It's not, it hasn't sunk in for him yet in an individual way. Um, so let's see how he moves forward. I'm actually going to skip the second half of verse 3, or verse 4 for the sake of time. It would, yeah, I'm just going to skip it for the sake of time. Um, Alright, so let's look at verses 5 and 6. Uh, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. <clears throat> I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So, these verses, they present us with the psalmist's response after having discovered that there is forgiveness with the Lord. Um, and, his for, and his inquiry for finding relief from his condition of being in the depths. Uh, he knows there's forgiveness, but it seems that there, he does not have a deep sense of it, a comforting sense of that forgiveness. I guess you could say he doesn't have peace. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, in these verses, we can understand this as how faith acts once one discovers forgiveness with God. How faith acts once one discovers forgiveness with God. So clearly, from these verses, we see that the psalmist, he waits on the Lord for relief from his condition. Uh, and this is similar, we can draw a principle that's similar to, I think it was verse 1, where he goes to God. The psalmist, he doesn't wait on something else. He waits on God and God alone. He knows that God is the only hope for finding relief from that condition. Second, uh, the word translated as wait, it can be understood um, in the sense of like eagerly look for or wait eagerly for and what i mean by that is there's an implicit expectation of fulfillment that the thing waited for will come forth will happen and this is especially clear from verse six and i'll mention that in a moment but something else um that is likely based off of the context and uh the stem of the word itself which i'm not going to get into but um there's a repetition uh, of the action involved the psalmist and yeah what i mean by that is that the psalmist he does not wait on the lord for one moment and then just move on um, but rather there's a continuity or continual waiting for the lord there's a commitment to waiting until the thing waited for comes to pass uh, that's kind of like the idea of perseverance and then making those observations clearer and backing up i think uh, what i just said is that the description of the watchmen who are waiting, it, it, we see this in the description of the watchmen who are waiting for the morning. Uh, so these watchmen were likely like some sort of guard who stood on like the wall of a particular city throughout the night watching for an enemy. And they would continually watch through the night and expectantly wait for the morning light to come. And that fits well with what I just said, um, how the psalmist is continually waiting and expectantly waiting for the Lord to re relieve him of his condition. So I'll bring these principles home in a moment, but there's one more thing I need to draw your attention to. This connects to uh, the Pilgrim's Progress thing as well. So what grounds the hope of the psalmist is the Word of God. That is his rock that he stands on, that gives him strength, 
and it gives him hope that the Lord will reveal relieve his condition um, of being in the depths. So notice how the hope is not in anything in him. It's not in some condition that he's in. He does not look within and fall into despair or, or gain hope from his condition of being in the depths, one or the other. All of his hope um, in worldly matters, he takes them and then he puts them on the word of God. So now I'll, I'll try and draw these or bring these principles home. Okay, so when you're in the depths and um, you cry out to God for mercy, you know there's forgiveness with God and you don't know how to move forward from that position, this psalm gives you just extremely clear steps forward, extremely clear. So what are those steps? And it's waiting. And I remember when I was reading this, I, I got this from John Owen. I mean, really, it's just the psalm. But when I was, I was like, you got to be kidding me. When you're in uh, this kind of situation and you want to get out of that as quickly as possible. But the, the fact of the matter is that uh, the psalm lays before us, I think, a very clear path. And in, in that path is waiting. It's waiting. And there are three things that I want to highlight in this waiting. Um, one is patience. Two is diligence, and three is expectation. So what I mean by waiting patiently, uh, I mean that in opposition to haste. So one can't demand anything from God. You must wait patiently for God to do his work. Um, We don't have a right to demand forgiveness from God. We don't have a right to demand uh, relief from our condition. Um, so we must wait for God to draw us out of that condition. Now, does this mean that we do nothing in our waiting? No, uh, we wait with diligence as well. Um, and diligence is in opposition to what we could call like spiritual sloth or laziness. So diligence <clears throat> refers very specifically to the activity of the mind and regular use of means that God has given us to pursue a specific end in mind. So in our case, the end in mind is finding relief from the condition of being in the depths because of sin. So neglecting these means that God has given us uh, to draw out of the depths, um, it'll guarantee no relief from that condition. And we can use like a real life example of anything. If you have a goal in mind, you have to take steps in order to um, come out or to achieve that goal. you can you can use any example with that. I'm I'm actually just going to skip that, but you can use any example with that. So the same goes for spiritual matters. An individual who sows no seed um, for finding relief from this condition just complains and wallows in sorrow or ignores the condition, uh, goes to other things. He can't expect fruit. He cannot expect to be drawn out of the depths. Now God sometimes I think gracious graciously does do that but without diligence uh it's a rare rare occurrence at the very least so what are the means that god's given us that we might be relieved by god from the depths that's basic stuff prayer bible reading study meditation on the word thinking on it um, hearing the word of God preached, gathering with believers, repenting regularly, offering our lives as living sacrifices to God in whatever situation he has us in, thinking consciously about having a willing disposition to do whatever God asks, asks of us in whatever situation. So when you're in the depths, do not do the opposite and blame God for your position or stop going to him. You have to press on. You have to press on and go to him and wait diligently. Press into the word of God. Tackle questions you might have. Go to God in prayer. And don't give up moment by moment. You have to persevere. Um, So remember, your goal of being relieved from the condition that you're in and then apply yourself moment by moment, day by day, to attaining that goal. So this will kind of give you a lens of making decisions throughout the day. Obviously, you don't have to go insane with this, but maybe you do. Um, This helps give you a lens to decide on what you should do throughout the day because your goal, if you have a goal in mind um, and you want to achieve that goal, every decision you make throughout the day must be sifted through that lens. So if I want to, uh, say, be good at the languages, 
Um, I need to put time into that every single day. And if I make the decision to watch TV instead of doing that, I will reap the consequences of that. So the same thing goes for spiritual matters, as I said. So lastly, uh, we must wait expectantly. And this is vital. Uh, This is contrary to unbelief. Unbelief would say, uh, I don't think that God will relieve me or he won't relieve me or I I have no hope. Um, Belief says, I expect God to relieve my condition in his time and I will wait until he does or I'll die waiting for it. Um, An individual uh, will certainly stop persevering eventually if he doesn't think that he will get relief from his condition. There has to be some sort of expectation of it. Just as the watchmen wait expectantly for the morning, so the Christian must expectantly wait for God to relieve him being in the depths. Um, And remember, this is grounded in the Word of God. In particular, our hope is grounded on the promises that are found in the Word of God. If you don't know the promises, what are you going to hold on to? Um, Okay, I think that's that's good for that. we need to move on. Yeah, we need to move on. Okay, so there's more that can be said, but I'm, I'm going to try and close this using verses 7 to 8. So in verses 7 to 8, um, we see an exhortation to believers, uh, and this concludes the, the psalm as well. In verse 7, he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So until this verse, he's been talking about himself, but now he speaks to others. He encourages them to hope in the Lord just as he has. And it's grounded on God's unfailing love, that is his character, and his redemption, the full redemption, that is forgiveness. Um, That's with the Lord. And this is the call to every believer and unbeliever alike. Uh, It's put your hope in the Lord. Everything else will fail you. With the Lord, there's unfailing love. And we're to fix our minds on that. So it's a simple concept. And it's not much, right? It's two verses there. But to fix your mind on it and keep it on your mind is is a different thing. Um, There's much redemption with God. Um, There's enough. I think that's what that, that phrase is, full redemption. There's enough redemption for you. He has taken care of all of it through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He fully redeems. And lastly, he doesn't exhort you to hope in the Lord because of anything in you. He does not say, pull yourself out of the depths um, and believe in me. Do something and then come to me. No, he says, hope in the Lord because there's full redemption with him. There's mercy with him. Um, And that's your sole ground of hoping the Lord. It's nothing in you, uh, everything from and in him. So maybe you're listening today and and you're in the depths because of your sin. Maybe you feel this great chasm between you and God. Uh, The exhortation is come directly to God. Ask him for mercy. Acknowledge your inability to stand before him with your sin and cling to the fact that there's forgiveness with him based on what Christ has done. And then diligently and expectantly wait for him to relieve you from your condition. And then verses 7 and 8, go tell others about it. There's no greater joy in the world than to know forgiveness. There's nothing to fear in that case. Um, So as I stated before uh, in the beginning, this psalm, it functions as the key to escaping the depths caused by our sin. Just as Christian, right, he's the key of promise to escape from his spiritual darkness, so too we use use this psalm as a key to escaping our spiritual darkness, particularly the depths, the depths, the inward depths. So you must cling to this and apply it to your situation. Uh, I encourage you to allow this psalm to guide you out of the depths. Um, Commit yourself to it. Memorize it. uh, Whatever you have to do to keep it on your mind. Um, So I have one last question for you. And this is kind of taking a step back and working with this principle in in a wider way. I've been very, very narrow in my approach to applying the psalm. But now I'm going to take a step back. Um, take a step back, I guess, to applying this principle to finding relief from any condition. Uh, So my question to you is, what do you go to for comfort and relief from whatever condition you're in? Um, What's your go-to for hope? What helps you sleep at night? Uh, Is it the comfortability of your life, the security that you find in your government or your job? Uh, I really believe that God is... 
stripping these things from the American church. I think it's quicker than we might like. Uh, but this is a, it's, it's a good thing. I really think it's a good thing. And the reason why I say that is because the way I understand the depths is that they're a place where you get stripped of all self-confidence and confidence in circumstances. They're taken away from you. And here, uh, it's like really uh, soft ground. I don't know if that's the right word. It's, it's fertile soil where God can teach you to rely on himself alone um, without the absolute necessity of it and those comforts and um, leaders that we have that we can maybe look up to. When, once those are all stripped away and we literally have no hope in nation, we have no hope in uh, financial stability, no hope in uh, stability of the future of our country, whatever it is, um, you don't have anything else to rely on. So either you're going to numb away the pain or you're going to go to God and find your uh, your hope in Him and Him alone. So my question is, do you go to things that are not the work of God to relieve you? I mean, I assume you do. I know I do at times or often, you know, more often than I'd like to say, um, are you depending on things that are not God and His word for your hope in this world? Uh, I challenge you and myself uh, to reorient the way that you think and fall fully upon God and his word. So when you're anxious, go to God and wait diligently in prayer and his word. When you're in any condition, go to the word and cling to it. I, I sincerely think that the word is sufficient for these things, completely sufficient. Uh, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, it's such an encouraging passage. God, I pray that... Uh, all who do not know uh, your forgiveness or who are in the depths, that you would relieve them of their condition. I pray that your word would function as as a guide to them, that they would learn to rely on you through relying on your word. Um, God, and I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.